Book Five, Chapter One of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Five, Chapter One. Desperate assault on the quarters, fury of the Mexicans, sally of the Spaniards, Montezuma addresses the people, dangerously wounded. The palace of Ashayacatl, in which the Spaniards were quartered, was, as the reader may remember, a vast irregular pile of stone buildings, having but one floor, except in the centre, where another story was added consisting of a suite of apartments which rose like turrets on the main building of the edifice a vast area stretched around encompassed by a stone wall of no great height this was supported by towers or bulwarks at certain intervals which gave it some degree of strength not indeed as compared with european fortifications but sufficient to resist the rude battering enginery of the indians the parapet had been pierced here and there with embrasures for the artillery which consisted of thirteen guns and smaller apertures were made in other parts for the convenience of the arquebusiers the spanish forces found accommodations within the great building but the numerous body of tlascalan auxiliaries could have had no other shelter than what was afforded by barracks or sheds hastily constructed for the purpose in the spacious courtyard thus crowded into a small compact compass the whole army could be assembled at a moment's notice and as the spanish commander was careful to enforce the strictest discipline and vigilance it was scarcely possible that he could be taken by surprise no sooner therefore did the trumpet call to arms as the approach of the enemy was announced than every soldier was at his post the cavalry mounted, the artillerymen at their guns, and the archers and arquebusiers stationed so as to give the assailants a warm reception. On they came, with the companies or irregular masses into which the multitude was divided, rushing forward, each in its own dense column, with many a gay banner displayed, and many a bright gleam of light reflected from helmet, arrow, and spearhead, as they were tossed about in their disorderly array. As they drew near the enclosure, the Aztecs set up a hideous yell, or rather that shrill whistle used in fight by the nations of Anahuac, which rose far above the sound of shell and atabal, and their other rude instruments of warlike melody. There followed this by a tempest of missiles, stones, darts, and arrows, which fell thick as rain on the besieged, while volleys of the same kind descended from the crowded terraces of the neighbourhood. The Spaniards waited until the foremost column had arrived within the best distance for giving effect to their fire, when a general discharge of artillery and arquebuses swept the ranks of the assailants, and mowed them down by hundreds. The Mexicans were familiar with the report of these formidable engines, as they had been harmlessly discharged on some holiday festival, but never till now had they witnessed their murderous power. They stood aghast for a moment, as with bewildered looks they staggered under the fury of the fire, but, soon rallying, 
the bold barbarians uttered a piercing cry and rushed forward over the prostrate bodies of their comrades a second and a third volley checked their career and threw them into disorder but still they pressed on letting off clouds of arrows while their comrades on the roofs of the houses took more deliberate aim at the combatants in the courtyard the mexicans were particularly expert in the use of the sling and the stones which they hurled from their elevated positions on the heads of their enemies did even greater execution than the arrows they glanced indeed from the mail-covered bodies of the cavaliers and from those who were sheltered under the cotton panoply or escaupil but some of the soldiers especially the veterans of cortez and many of their indian allies had but slight defences and suffered greatly under this stony tempest the aztecs meanwhile had advanced close under the walls of the entrenchment their ranks broken and disordered and their limbs mangled by the unintermitting fire of the christians but they still pressed on under the very muzzle of the guns they endeavoured to scale the parapet which from its moderate height was in itself a work of no great difficulty but the moment they showed their heads above the rampart they were shot down by the unerring marksmen within or stretched on the ground by a blow of a tlascalan makawitl nothing daunted others soon appeared to take the place of the fallen and strove by raising themselves on the writhing bodies of their dying comrades or by fixing their spears in the crevices of the wall to surmount the barrier but the attempt proved equally vain defeated here they tried to effect a breach in the parapet by battering it with heavy pieces of timber the works were not constructed on those scientific principles by which one part is made to overlook and protect another the besiegers therefore might operate at their pleasure with but little molestation from the garrison within whose guns could not be brought into a position to bear on them and who could mount no part of their own works for their defence without exposing their persons to the missiles of the whole besieging army the parapet however proved too strong for the efforts of the assailants in their despair they endeavoured to set the christian quarters on fire shooting burning arrows into them and climbing up so as to dart their firebrands through the embrasures the principal edifice was of stone but the temporary defences of the indian allies and other parts of the exterior works were of wood several of these took fire and the flame spread rapidly among the light combustible materials this was a disaster for which the besieged were wholly unprepared they had little water scarcely enough for their own consumption they endeavoured to extinguish the flames by heaping on earth but in vain fortunately the great building was of materials which defied the destroying element but the fire raged in some of the outworks connected with the parapet with a fury which could only be checked by throwing down a part of the wall itself thus laying open a formidable breach this by the general's order was speedily protected by a battery of heavy guns and a file of arquebusiers who kept up an incessant volley through the opening on the assailants the fight now raged with fury on both sides the walls around the palace belched forth an unintermitting sheet of flame and smoke the groans of the wounded and dying were lost in the fiercer battle cries of the combatant the roar of the artillery the sharper rattle of the musketry and the hissing sound of indian missiles it was the conflict of the european with the american 
of civilized man with the barbarian, of the science of the one with the rude weapons and warfare of the other. And as the ancient walls of Tenochtitlan shook under the thunders of the artillery, it announced that the white man, the destroyer, had set his foot within her precincts. Night at length came, and drew her friendly mantle over the contest. The Aztec seldom fought by night. It brought little repose, however, to the Spaniards, in hourly expectation of an assault, and they found abundant occupation in restoring the breaches in their defences, and in repairing their battered armour. The ferocity shown by the Mexicans seems to have been a thing for which Cortes was wholly unprepared. His past experience, his uninterrupted career of victory, with a much feebler force at his command, had led him to underrate the military efficiency, if not the valour, of the Indians. The apparent facility with which the Mexicans had acquiesced in the outrages on their sovereign and themselves, had led him to hold their courage, in particular, too lightly. He could not believe the present assault to be anything more than a temporary abolition of the populace, which would soon waste itself by its own fury, and he proposed on the following day to sally out and inflict such chastisement on his foes as should bring them to their senses and show who was master in the capital. With early dawn the Spaniards were up and under arms, but not before their enemies had given evidence of their hostility by the random missiles which from time to time were sent into the enclosure. As the grey light of morning advanced, it showed the besieging army far from being diminished in numbers, filling up the great square and neighbouring avenues in more dense array than on the preceding evening. Instead of a confused, disorderly rabble, it had the appearance of something like a regular force, with its battalions distributed under their respective banners, the devices of which showed a contribution from the principal cities and districts in the valley. High above the rest was conspicuous the ancient standard of Mexico, with its well-known cognizance, an eagle pouncing on an ocelot, emblazoned on a rich mantle of featherwork. Here and there priests might be seen mingling in the ranks of the besiegers, and with frantic gestures animating them to avenge their insulted deities. The greater part of the enemy had little clothing save the mashtlatl, or sash, round the loins. They were variously armed, with long spears tipped with copper or flint, or sometimes merely pointed and hardened in the fire. Some were provided with slings, and others with darts having two or three points, with long strings attached to them, by which, when discharged, they could be torn away again from the body of the wounded. This was a formidable weapon, much dreaded by the Spaniards. Those of a higher order wielded the terrible Macahuitl, with its sharp and brittle blades of obsidian. Amidst the motley bands of warriors were seen many whose showy dress and air of authority intimated persons of high military consequence. Their breasts were protected by plates of metal over which was thrown the gay surcoat of featherwork. They wore casques resembling in their form the head of some wild and ferocious animal crested with bristly hair or overshadowed by tall and graceful plumes of many a brilliant colour. Some few were decorated with the red fillet bound round the hair, having tufts of cotton attached to it, which denoted by their number that of the victories they had won, 
and their own pre-eminent rank among the warriors of the nation. The motley assembly showed that priest, warrior, and citizen had all united to swell the tumult. Before the sun had shot his beams into the Castilian quarters, the enemy were in motion, evidently preparing to renew the assault of the preceding day. The Spanish commander determined to anticipate them by a vigorous sortie, for which he had already made the necessary dispositions. A general discharge of ordnance and musketry sent death far and wide into the enemy's ranks, and, before they had time to recover from their confusion, the gates were thrown open, and Cortes, sallying out at the head of his cavalry, supported by a large body of infantry and several thousand Tlascalans, rode at full gallop against them. Taken thus by surprise, it was scarcely possible to offer much resistance. Those who did were trampled down under the horses' feet, cut to pieces with the broadswords, or pierced with the lances of the riders. The infantry followed up the blow, and the rout for the moment was general. But the Aztecs fled only to take refuge behind a barricade or strong work of timber and earth, which had been thrown across the great street through which they were pursued. Rallying on the other side, they made a gallant stand, and poured in turn a volley of their light weapons on the Spaniards, who, saluted with a storm of missiles at the same time from the terraces of the houses, were checked in their career, and thrown into some disorder. Cortes, thus impeded, ordered up a few pieces of heavy ordnance, which soon swept away the barricades, and cleared a passage for the army. But it had lost the momentum acquired in its rapid advance. The enemy had time to rally, and to meet the Spaniards on more equal terms. They were attacked in flank, too, as they advanced by fresh battalions, who swarmed in from the adjoining streets and lanes. The canals were alive with boats filled with warriors, who, with their formidable darts, searched every crevice or weak place in the armour of proof, and made havoc on the unprotected bodies of the Tlascalans. By repeated and vigorous charges, the Spaniards succeeded in driving the Indians before them, though many, with a desperation which showed they loved vengeance better than life, sought to embarrass the movements of their horses by clinging to their legs, or more successfully strove to pull the riders from their saddles. And woe to the unfortunate cavalier who was thus dismounted, to be dispatched by the brutal Macahuitl, or to be dragged on board a canoe to the bloody altar of sacrifice. But the greatest annoyance which the Spaniards endured was from the missiles from the azoteas, consisting often of large stones, hurled with a force that would tumble the stoutest rider from his saddle. Galled in the extreme by these discharges, against which even their shields afforded no adequate protection, Cortes ordered fire to be set to the buildings. This was no very difficult matter, since, although chiefly of stone, they were filled with mats, cane-work, and other combustible materials, which were soon in a blaze. But the buildings stood separated from one another by canals and drawbridges, so that the flames did not easily communicate to the neighbouring edifices. Hence the labour of the Spaniards was incalculably increased, and their progress in the work of destruction, fortunately for the city, was comparatively slow. They did not relax their efforts, however, till several hundred houses had been consumed, and the miseries of a conflagration, in which the wretched inmates perished equally with the defenders, were added to the other horrors of the scene. 
The day was now far spent. The Spaniards had been everywhere victorious. But the enemy, though driven back on every point, still kept the field. When broken by the furious charges of the cavalry, he soon rallied behind the temporary defences which at different intervals had been thrown across the streets, and facing about renewed the fight with undiminished courage, till the sweeping away of the barriers by the cannon of the assailants left a free passage for the movements of their horse. Thus the action was a succession of rallying and retreating, in which both parties suffered much, although the loss inflicted on the Indians was probably tenfold greater than that of the Spaniards. But the Aztecs could better afford the loss of a hundred lives than their antagonists that of one. And while the Spaniards showed an array broken and obviously thinned in number, the Mexican army, swelled by the tributary levies which flowed in upon it from the neighbouring streets, exhibited, with all its losses, no sign of diminution. At length, sated with carnage, and exhausted by toil and hunger, the Spanish commander drew off his men, and sounded a retreat. On his way back to his quarters, he beheld his friend, the secretary Duero, in a street adjoining, unhorsed, and hotly engaged with a body of Mexicans, against whom he was desperately defending himself with his poniard. Cortes, roused at the sight, shouted his war-cry, and dashing into the midst of the enemy, scattered them like chaff by the fury of his onset. Then, recovering his friend's horse, he enabled him to remount, and the two cavaliers, striking their spurs into their steeds, burst through their opponents, and joined the main body of the army. The undaunted Aztecs hung on the rear of their retreating foes, annoying them at every step by fresh flights of stones and arrows, and when the Spaniards had re-entered their fortress, the Indian host encamped around it, showing the same dogged resolution as on the preceding evening. Though true to their ancient habits of inaction during the night, they broke the stillness of the hour by insulting cries and menaces, which reached the ears of the besieged. The gods have delivered you at last into our hands, they said. Huitzilopochtli has long cried for his victims. The stone of sacrifice is ready, the knives are sharpened, the wild beasts in the palace are roaring for their offal, and the cages, they added, taunting the Tlascalans with their leanness, are waiting for the false sons of our Nahuac, who are to be fattened for the festival. These dismal menaces, which sounded fearfully in the ears of the besieged, who understood too well their import, were mingled with piteous lamentations for their sovereign, whom they called on the Spaniards to deliver up to them. Cortes suffered much from a severe wound, which he had received in the hand in the late action, but the anguish of his mind must have been still greater, as he brooded over the dark prospect before him. He had mistaken the character of the Mexicans. Their long and patient endurance had been a violence to their natural temper, which, as their whole history proves, was arrogant and ferocious beyond that of most of the races of Anahuac. The restraint which, in deference to their monarch, more than to their own fears, they had so long put on their natures, being once removed, their passions burst forth with accumulated violence. The Spaniards had encountered in the Tlascalan an open enemy who had no grievance to complain of, no wrong to redress. He fought under the vague apprehension only of some coming evil to his country. But the Aztec, 
hitherto the proud lord of the land, was goaded by insult and injury, till he had reached that pitch of self-devotion which made life cheap in comparison with revenge. Considerations of this kind may have passed through the mind of Cortes as he reflected on his own impotence to restrain the fury of the Mexicans, and resolved in despite of his late supercilious treatment of Montezuma to employ his authority to allay the tumult, an authority so successfully exerted in behalf of Alvarado at an earlier stage of the insurrection. He was the more confirmed in his purpose on the following morning, when the assailants, redoubling their efforts, succeeded in scaling the works in one quarter, and effecting an entrance into the enclosure. It is true they were met with so resolute a spirit, that not a man of those who entered was left alive. But in the impetuosity of the assault, it seemed for a few moments as if the place was to be carried by storm. Cortes now sent to the Aztec Emperor to request his interposition with his subjects in behalf of the Spaniards. But Montezuma was not in the humour to comply. He had remained moodily in his quarters ever since the general's return. Disgusted with the treatment he had received, he had still further cause for mortification in finding himself the ally of those who were the open enemies of his nation. From his apartment he had beheld the tragical scenes in his capital, and seen another quit Lahua, the presumptive heir to his throne, whom Cortes had released a few days previous, taking the place which he should have occupied at the head of his warriors, and fighting the battles of his country. Distressed by his position, indignant at those who had placed him in it, he coldly answered, "'What have I to do with Malinche? I do not wish to hear from him.' I desire only to die. To what a state has my willingness to serve him reduced me? When urged still further to comply by Olid and Father Olmedo, he added, It is of no use. They will neither believe me, nor the false words and promises of Malinche. You will never leave these walls alive. On being assured, however, that the Spaniards would willingly depart if a way were opened to them by their enemies, he at length, moved probably more by the desire to spare the blood of his subjects than of the Christians, consented to expostulate with his people. In order to give the greater effect to his presence, he put on his imperial robes. The tilmatli, his mantle of white and blue, flowed over his shoulders, held together by its rich clasp of the green chalchwitl. The same precious gem, with emeralds of uncommon size set in gold, profusely ornamented other parts of his dress. His feet were shod with the golden sandals, and his brows covered by the copili, or Mexican diadem, resembling in form the pontifical tiara. Thus attired and surrounded by a guard of Spaniards and several Aztec nobles, and preceded by the golden wand, the symbol of sovereignty the Indian monarch ascended the central turret of the palace. His presence was instantly recognised by the people, and, as the royal retinue advanced along the battlements, a change, as if by magic, came over the scene. The clang of instruments, the fierce cries of the assailants, were hushed, and a death-like stillness pervaded the whole assembly, so fiercely agitated but a few moments before by the wild tumult of war. Many prostrated themselves on the ground, others bent the knee, and all turned with eager expectation towards the monarch, 
whom they had been taught to reverence with slavish awe, and from whose countenance they had been wont to turn away as from the intolerable splendours of divinity. Montezuma saw his advantage, and while he stood thus confronted with his awe-struck people, he seemed to recover all his former authority and confidence, as he felt himself to be still a king. With a calm voice, easily heard over the silent assembly, he is said by the Castilian writers to have thus addressed them. Why do I see my people here in arms against the palace of my fathers? Is it that you think your sovereign a prisoner, and wish to release him? If so, you have acted rightly. But you are mistaken. I am no prisoner. The strangers are my guests. I remain with them only from choice, and can leave them when I list. Have you come to drive them from the city? That is unnecessary. They will depart of their own accord if you will open a way for them. Return to your homes, then. Lay down your arms. Show your obedience to me, who have a right to it. The white men shall go back to their own land, and all shall be well again within the walls of Tenochtitlan. As Montezuma announced himself the friend of the detested strangers, a murmur ran through the multitude, a murmur of contempt for the pusillanimous prince, who could show himself so insensible to the insults and injuries for which the nation was in arms. The swollen tide of their passions swept away all the barriers of ancient reverence, and, taking a new direction, descended on the head of the unfortunate monarch, so far degenerated from his warlike ancestors. "'Base Aztec!' they exclaimed. "'Woman! Coward! The white men have made you a woman fit only to weave and spin!' These bitter taunts were soon followed by still more hostile demonstrations. A chief, it is said, of high rank, bent a bow or brandished a javelin with an air of defiance against the emperor, when in an instant a cloud of stones and arrows descended on the spot where the royal train was gathered. The Spaniards, appointed to protect his person, had been thrown off their guard by the respectful deportment of the people during their lord's address. They now hastily interposed their bucklers. But it was too late. Montezuma was wounded by three of the missiles, one of which, a stone, fell with such violence on his head, near the temple, as brought him senseless to the ground. The Mexicans, shocked at their own sacrilegious act, experienced a sudden revulsion of feeling, and setting up a dismal cry, dispersed panic-struck in different directions. Not one of the multitudinous array remained in the great square before the palace. The unhappy prince, meanwhile, was borne by his attendants to his apartments below. On recovering from the insensibility caused by the blow, the wretchedness of his condition broke upon him. He had tasted the last bitterness of degradation. He had been reviled, rejected by his people. The meanest of the rabble had raised their hands against him. He had nothing more to live for. It was in vain that Cortes and his officers endeavoured to soothe the anguish of his spirit, and fill him with better thoughts. He spoke not a word in answer. His wound, though dangerous, might still, with skilful treatment, not prove mortal. But Montezuma refused all the remedies prescribed for it. He tore off the bandages as often as they were applied, maintaining all the while the most determined silence. He sat with eyes dejected, brooding over his fallen fortunes, over the image of ancient majesty and present humiliation. 
he had survived his honour. But a spark of his ancient spirit seemed to kindle in his bosom, as it was clear he did not mean to survive his disgrace. From this painful scene the Spanish general and his followers were soon called away by the new dangers which menaced the garrison. End of Book 5, Chapter 1